Hello, I'm Brett Terpstra, and you're listening to Systematic. My guest this week is Tiffany White, an independent software developer. Thanks for being here, Tiffany. Thank you for having me, Brett. So when did you first start to code? Early 2015. I just was thinking that I needed a career change, and someone mentioned the pre-code camp to me. Yeah. And I started learning right there. What were you doing before that? I was doing absolutely nothing before that. I was going to school for a long time, just basically a professional student who was trying to get a degree in English and perhaps get an MFA in writing. But as someone who didn't have any money, I did. I felt like that wasn't an appropriate career choice <laughs> at the time. You need to. You um, need to have money to be. An MFA in lit? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So I, I lived in Pittsburgh at the time, and there were a whole bunch of tech meetups out there. And I went to one. Code and Supply is one of the biggest ones out there. Learned a little Ruby and decided that's what I wanted to do. And you went to school for a little while. Yeah. In, I went for to the code. For code. Yeah. Yeah. I went to um, Pitt, uh, the University of Pittsburgh, for computer science for two years. It was interesting to see how different that environment was compared to me learning on my own. There was just, I don't want to say that it was a bad experience. It was a different experience because you were learning more theory and more algorithms and data structures and things like that, that things that you aren't really going to use on the job. At least when I was working at my previous job, I didn't use any of that stuff. It did teach you how to think, how to learn, how to think about abstractions. But I just, I found that the courses that I needed to take along with the computer science courses that I was taking just did not, I just didn't want to to, to take those. I was getting older and I just, I didn't want to continue to, to go through that route. So. I decided I was just going to do it on my own. Plus, Pitt is expensive. So sure. there was that. <laughs> yeah. So do you feel like going through things like free code camp that you got perhaps a more useful education that way? Yes, I think so. They do have their algorithm and data structures, part of the free code camp that's really invaluable. So when I started free code camp, it was right at the beginning of free code camp's existence. So they were basically aggregating different different sources for you to learn. Then they made their own curriculum and then have improved upon it for the past six years. And it's just, it's an amazing resource and it's free. And I learned a good bit there and I would recommend it to anyone starting out, like wanting to learn how to code. It's, it's great. And it's not just web development. It's not just JavaScript. They have Python now and machine learning. So check it out. So you were able to parlay that then into an actual industry job. You went from a an English major to working in tech. Did you was there an uphill battle to try to get that first job without a college degree? Yes, there was. And it wasn't so much that the lack of a degree for me. I got there were people who reached out to me from like Google and Twitter and things like that. I think what it was for me was my lack of building anything useful. When you go to free 
pre-code camp and you work on on the curriculum, there are projects that you need to do. There are things you need to do, projects to actually move on to the next uh, section to get a certificate or whatever. And I wasn't doing that. I was going to different tutorial sites and feeling like I was doing things by doing code alongs and things like that. And that that hindered me more than not having a computer science degree. What would the recommendation there be? If someone were following in your path, what would you say to do differently? I would tell them to build things Learn a little bit from, say, free co-camp or a Udemy course. Learn whatever you can from there. You don't need to finish those things. Learn the basics and start building a project and continue to dip in and out of tutorials. But don't just spend time spinning your wheels doing these things because you're not actually learning anything. You're not synthesizing the things that you're learning and applying them to something real, a real world project and not just a project that you get from like a Udemy course, but a project that you've thought of on your own. Like you can take a an idea from a repo that I found on GitHub called App Ideas. You can take an idea from there and then start building it with the stuff that you've learned from whatever tutorial you have been doing. So I think that building a project and several projects is going to help you in the long run learn how programming works and learn how to be a developer and landing your first, you know, software job. It's interesting that you say that. I because that's the only way that I can learn. I don't think I've ever finished an online course of any kind. I dropped <laughs> out of a computer science degree after a year. Like I only learn by creating my own projects and like my GitHub has a hundred some repositories. And (laughs) if any employer has ever wanted to know, what do I know? It's literally all all there in GitHub repositories. And that has served me pretty well. Yeah, I, yeah, I wasted so much time and I've never finished an online course. And part of, I think I finished one and it was the course that I learned the most in, but I think A lot of it for me was fear. It was fear of the blank text editor and not knowing where to begin when I was thrown, you know, into the fire. And it it was scary to me. And I did not like when I was growing up, I there were I I was in quote unquote gifted classes and honors classes and things like that. Things came easily to me when I was growing up in in school. I never skipped any grades because my mom wouldn't allow it. But when I started programming, those things just did not come as easily to me. And it scared me for a long time. And I didn't want to quit because I, I needed to get out of the poverty that I was living in. But I did fear not not being smart enough to actually learn how to program. So how did you first get started in tech? I just started, I I like, before I was in tech officially, even though I loved technology as a kid in the inner city where, you know, central Pennsylvania, in a city called Harrisburg, growing up there in the 80s, it wasn't something, even though I loved tech, it wasn't something that I thought I could do. 
Um, no one around me was doing it. I did have a computer when I was 12. My mom, she got a hand-me-down. She worked for the state and she worked as a uh, computer operator, which is not, it's not a, a programmer, but just someone who sits at a terminal and um, does some data entry. So she worked with people that program computers and things like that. And she bought a Commodore 128 off a guy for $500 because I was into writing at that time. And she thought that I might need something to write my poetry on. And so she bought the computer and I basically played games on it. I didn't really program too much. It was, it used basic. And at the time I was in a bad place mentally and too foggy to understand how basic worked. And the guy that was going to teach me programming, he never, we never got a chance to sit down and, and learn it. But so I didn't really know that tech was a thing I could do. I basically just wrote, I wrote poetry, short fiction and things like that. So when I first started going to college back in the early 2000s, I was basically going for writing English major. And it wasn't until I was in and out of school for a long time. And it wasn't until I moved to Pittsburgh where I decided that I would, I was already, I already didn't have any money and it was hard to live, like to live in that city without a whole lot of money. And I decided that I wanted to make some money and I decided to switch it up to, to learn coding and things like that. So that's, that's where I was coming from initially. There were periods in between the time that I was going to college in the early 2000s, between them and me choosing to to learn how to code. I had an Android phone in 2010 and I decided to, it was really slow. And the only way you could fix that at the time was to download a custom ROM, like basically root your phone download a custom ROM and try to fix the lag that was on it. And I I found that to be incredibly enjoyable. And so I started doing that a lot. And it kind of opened up a world to me that I would have liked to have known more about before then, but it did get me interested in tech as a whole. So, how, so have you for the last five years or so, how many jobs have you had in the industry? I've had two. I had an internship, well, three. I had an internship in 2017, a four-month internship at, I think they're called Forum now, but they were the deaf community at the time. I was there for four months. I learned a little bit on the job. We were using Ruby on Rails for for most of the app. And there I learned that I was not really prepared at all (laughs) to work in the industry because I, my mid internship review was terrible and it couched me for a while. Like I wasn't able to respond well to that, that feedback. I'm like withdrew from the team and into myself. And, And part of the issue with that, with me in that internship was that I didn't communicate very well. And it didn't dawn on me that being in a team even when you're programming, you think programming is something solitary and it's absolutely not. And I wasn't prepared to communicate with my teammates, especially when I got that that bad performance review. It just it felt like I wasn't good enough. And so I withdrew into myself and didn't communicate hardly at all after that. 
And then I had my job in 2019. I got a job at a government consulting firm, which was my first real, quote unquote, real developer job. And yeah, I wasn't prepared for that either because it was so fast paced and the budget was constrained because it was government consulting. And I just... it, it wasn't like I could, they didn't have the resources to help train junior developers. And I suffered a bit because of that. And then in 2020, early 2020, the whole world basically shut down and they laid people off. And I was a casualty of that. And so I had to figure out what am I going to do now? Like I moved out of my apartment and into a new one. And I was scared that I wasn't I was scared I was going to be homeless. I had someone reach out to me to do a little freelance work for a um, startup, a fintech startup called Bumped. And we worked on their landing page together. And that was probably one of the most valuable experiences I had working in tech up until that point. So, yeah. All right. So it sounds like one of your biggest obstacles has not been the actual learning to code, but more phrase it as like the mental health of the industry. Yeah. Do you think that the tech industry as a whole has accommodations for that kind of for those needs? It depends on the company you are at. I think there are a lot of startups that don't have that. There are a lot of big companies that don't have accommodations for this. And I was a part of one of them. And I think that tech is more progressive in this area than other industries, but there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. And I follow a lot of smart people on Twitter that are trying to make headway into this discussion of mental health and technology and imposter syndrome and getting beyond that that stigma in the workplace. In the startup kind of environment, they work people very hard. Tech is notorious for expecting a lot and expecting long hours and and then the burnout that that causes. Have you experienced any of that? Yes. <clears throat> yes, I have. And it's, yeah, I mean, at, at my last job, my last full-time job at the government consulting firm, I was on four different teams doing four different projects. I was responsible for the front end for those different projects. And each one of those projects had a ton of tickets. And I was expected as a junior to move really quickly through four different projects. I had the team lead, the tech lead, I should say to me, he said, you, this is too much. And I agreed with him. But for that type of work, you need to be billable. And I had to have 100% of my time being billed. And so I had to have those four projects. And it was difficult. I remember the day before Thanksgiving of 2019, like the night before Thanksgiving, I had a really bad panic attack because I felt like I was doing a lot and not getting anywhere. And I also felt like I was going to lose my job if I didn't if I didn't pick up the pace and if I didn't, if I didn't take on more work and it it wasn't healthy and it didn't help that I was new to the industry and it didn't help that the company knew this, 
but didn't seem to to care too much about that, about my experience or the mental health of the people that worked there. The tech lead was constantly, yeah, it was a bad situation, not just for me, but for a lot of the folks that worked there. So that sounds like for anyone who's like currently looking at getting into tech, that's the kind of story that I think uh, makes people nervous, scares people. Do you have any advice when you're scoping out a company, when you're applying for jobs, what would you look for in the environment that would that would maybe prevent that kind of burnout? I would take a look at the about page of different companies that you're applying for. And I would do some research. Now, you could say Glassdoor isn't the best place to research, but I found because you get disgruntled employees and stuff like sure. that. But I found that researching on Glassdoor helps a little bit to decide whether this company is something that you want, like a com- this is a company you want to work for. Looking at their about page and what what their mission statements are, things like that. And then if you can find someone who works at the company at the moment, at the time that you're applying, give them a, if you can find them, try to contact them and ask them some general questions about the company and how their culture is and what the work-life balance is, if there is such a thing as work-life balance, Mm -hmm. but ask them what it looks like to work there for a day, for a week. And see whether that is something that is going to be helpful to you and and keep you healthy while you're trying to make a living, basically. Sure. All right. So you've dabbled a little bit in filmmaking. What, What kind of stuff have you done there? I'm just beginning. So I've been following a lot of YouTube channels on filmmaking. And I just I don't have a whole lot of experience. And unfortunately, being locked down, it's been really truly hard to get out and do what I want to do with filmmaking. But I shot a little short on my iPhone, just a little short to to experiment with light and shutter speed. I've done that. I've done a vlog that I took down off of YouTube because it the, the way I edited it, I used a thing called a LUT, which is a lookup table, where you can apply certain effects to the look of your video. And I didn't know what I was doing in Final Cut. And I apply three different LUTs. It looks awful. Like <laughs> when I'm in my mom's house, like her 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 house is already ha- full of tungsten light. And then I layered three LUTs on top of it and it's really orange. Yeah, but yeah, I want to get out and do more this summer if, if people get vaccinated and we open back up a little bit. I definitely want to get out and do a little bit more filmmaking because I enjoy it. Are you um, using any particular apps on your iPhone for shooting? Yes, I use the Moment app. I have some peripherals from Moment, like lenses and stuff like that, that I have yet to use. But I do use Moment and I use Filmic Pro and things like that. But I do have a, I don't know, proper quote unquote camera that I use for photography and videography as well. I want to utilize that more as well. I shot a video with my friend. She is a sixth generation weaver and she wanted a little promo thing for her hand woven stuff. And I shot that video. I'm, I like the video, but the audio was really bad. Just experimenting with stuff like that. And yeah, it's, it's fun. I enjoy it. I like telling stories and I like technology and gear and telling stories is my sweet spot. 
So you have a background in in English in writing. Does that apply to are you making a transition from uh, written word to filmmaking in that way? Pretty much. Yes. Um, I haven't written fiction in years, but I find that I think where most of my storytelling comes is when I edit videos. It when I shoot the the footage, there's things you have to keep in mind when you're doing that. Things that I haven't really learned until just recently, how to think about framing your shots and the, the through line for the story when you are shooting a short or whatever you're doing and then bringing it into Final Cut or Adobe Premiere Pro and understanding the story that you're trying to tell and chopping up the footage so that it tells a something tells a coherent um, narrative. And that is something I'm learning to to take from the things that I learned as an English major and applying it to editing footage and shooting footage. I'm not there yet, but I'm getting there. Yeah, I feel like that's a skill that you hone through practice for sure. So on the list of topics that you sent me, but I didn't ask you about this before the show, what drones is just on that list? What about drones? <laughs> I have, I watch a lot of YouTube videos. Sure. That's basically my, I don't watch too much TV. And the only TV that I really watch is sports. So mainly my entertainment is YouTube. And I've watched a lot of different photographers and um, filmmakers use their drones effectively to help tell stories. And I thought, maybe I want to try to do that, but I'm not willing to spend a lot of money sure. on drones. So I bought two relatively inexpensive drones that I haven't been able to fly yet, which <laughs> really, jeez. And I don't want to fly them in my neighborhood because that's creepy. Play them in but, someone else's neighborhood. Oh yeah. Yes. Yeah. I just love I love the aerial shots that people get from drones. Where I live currently, it's not the most, I don't live in the Pacific Northwest. It's not beautiful like that. But if I can get to different spots in Pennsylvania, I feel like I want to get some aerial footage there. I'm not just film, but like photos as well. I'm part of a, a group on Facebook called Harrisburgers with Cameras. And it's a group for people in my city that take a lot of images. And there's a guy on there who who has a lot of drone photography of one of the most popular spots in our area. And I absolutely love those shots. And it's something that I want to do more of. So I have my drones and I just recently picked up a DJI Mini 2, which is DJI is really drones. And when you think of drones and you want to buy a drone, DJI is the the major player. And so I picked up a, a very small drone from them and I don't plan on flying it right away. I plan on fly, flying my cheaper, more disposable drones because I'm, I've never flown one. <laughs> and I honestly don't want to crash a drone that costs as much as the mini did. Yeah. I just, I want to get out there and do it. Just can't do it right now because of everything that's happening in the world. But yeah, I would think getting out into vastly uninhabited areas would be ideal for pandemic uh, yeah. drone flying. <laughs> yes. But all right, I'm going to take a quick sponsor break before we get to our top three picks. 
After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by big wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I first heard that Mint Mobile offers premium wireless service starting at just 15 bucks a month, I thought, what's the catch? But after speaking with them and using their service, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they're the first company to sell wireless service online only. By cutting out retail stores, there's no crazy overhead costs that get passed down to you in the form of mystery fees. Instead, Mint just passes sweet savings direct to you. I'm saving enough every month to more than offset the cost of the fancy coffee I like to drink, and that's significant. I always thought my wireless bill was just another expense I had to work around, but it turns out that I can pay 15 bucks a month instead of almost 100 for the same service. All plans come with unlimited talk and text and high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep your same number along with all of your existing contacts. It works perfectly with the iPhone I got through Verizon, and you can check online to see if your phone is supported. If you're not 100% satisfied, Mint Mobile has you covered with a seven-day money-back guarantee. Switch to Mint Mobile and get premium wireless service starting at just $15 a month. So to get your new wireless plan for 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped free to your door, Go to mintmobile.com slash systematic. That's mintmobile.com slash systematic. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash systematic. Okay, that brings us to the top three. What do you have for me? I can't recommend this camera enough, especially if you are are a beginner with filmmaking and videography and even photos it's the canon m50 is the camera that i use for most of my photos and videos it's not expensive it's like you can get the um creator kit for like 650 dollars, which comes with a mic and all this other the other things that you would need to take photos and videos it served me well for the past year with the video that i created with my friend and taking the photos of my desk that i take every other week so that's my first pick i have actually i've enjoyed the the pictures of your desk on instagram oh god it's it it gets a little bit like i don't i see a lot of that i had a lot of that coming through my instagram feed and i tried to follow along but eventually it's just like how many pictures of a desk can you take (laughs) and i just got tired of it i just like i don't want to be part of this rat race (laughs) but yeah that's my first pick How how much does the M50 cost if you buy it new? Without the kit, it's around $500, I think. Not an inexpensive camera. No, but it's probably for the things that you get with it, as far as controls and things like that. That's if if you want to go further, I think that's a good beginner camera. And even an even cheaper camera in that same line is called the Canon M100. They did come out with a newer version of that camera called the M200, but that camera is like 300 and the M1 the M100 is like $350. It's not too bad. So if you want to start with that, then you can probably do that. I that's what I started with. The first camera I started with when I started to do this. They are mirrorless. They're not DSLRs per se. Yeah. They're smaller. But yeah, that's definitely I'm a Canon girl, so I, I like that stuff. <laughs> All right. All right. So what's your second pick? My second pick would be the the Hi-Fi Man drop. I don't know how to say this. Like it's 
Mass Drop, which is now Drop, yeah. sells all kinds of gear for relatively well, less than what you would buy elsewhere. And I'm currently using a pair of headphones from Hi-Fi Man in collaboration with Drop that I got for $165. And they would be much more than that if I had bought them from Amazon. So I recommend these. These are just, they are well-built, well-constructed. Um, they sound good. The ear cups are, are soft and they don't cost as much as some other ones. And I use them all day, every day when I'm sitting at my desk. I, w- I have several different types of headphones, but these are my favorite out of all of them. Are they wired so, or wireless? They are wired. Okay. So that's the thing you got to, you have to take into consideration. If you want to move around a bit, I wouldn't choose these to take out anywhere, but basically sitting at your desk is what. Yeah, I actually need new headphones. Get me after the show, your drop affiliate link so that if anyone wants to buy this, you'll get, uh, you'll get some drop credit out of it. You get, okay, you get cool. 10 bucks yeah. here and there if you get enough people to sign up. Yeah. Okay, cool. I like drop. I use it mostly for keycaps, but yeah, I saw that they have keycaps. I have a mechanical keyboard, but I, I'm a little afraid to take off the keycaps. <laughs> I, I, I just today, I, I have the ultimate hacking keyboard and I'm beta testing the version two of the UHK and I just got it set up today and spent some time changing keycaps around because for me, it's not my keyboard until I've customized the keys. <laughs> yeah, I've got a, a was. WASD. Yeah. I've got one of those where I just changed the colors of the keycaps, but I want to start like getting more keycaps and fiddling around with them. And I saw that drop has really good ones. So I might have to learn how to replace the keycaps and then pick some up at drop. All you need is a keycap puller and you can buy them for a few bucks. You'll have fun. Oh, really? I promise. Yeah. Okay. Okay, cool. They just pop right off. It's okay. it's fun. It's fun. Yeah. All right. What's your third pick? My third pick is a Hue light strip. I like having light, like LED lights, smart lights and stuff like that. I really like having a light strip on the back of my desk, on the back of my TV for bias lighting, things like that. I was using a brand called LifeX, but... They are so fiddly and so like the connector to actually get it into a to connect to the power cord. Like you can bend it, the connectors really easily. And then the whole light strip stops working. <laughs> and I, I had I decided I'd go with Philips Hue and this is so far so good. So I like a lot of smart home stuff, a lot of it. It's ridiculous how much I have in here. And I connected basically all with a um free open source tool called Home Assistant, which I'll be writing more about that later on the one blog that I have. But yeah, basically light strips fill up you definitely a little pricey because with you, you have to have a hub. And that's why I chose LifeX in the beginning, because I did not want to spend the extra $60, $70 for a hub. I paid the price for not doing that. So I picked up some Philips Hue. I, I had a an Ikea light strip and you could get them for like they were 15 bucks and it had a 256 color wheel for rgb lighting and i had that hacked into my home automation system using insteon stuff and it ultimately all it ended up 
being for me was a, a nightlight. I had a strip <laughs> under the edge of my bed because I tended to get up in the middle of the night a lot. And my ex-wife now, but at the time happened to be my real wife and I didn't want to wake her up. So I had it so that there was a motion detector under the edge of the bed. And when I would stand up in the middle of the night, just this small strip of red lights would come on and like light the floor around the bed without waking anybody up. That was useful. I'm not sure what I would do with a light strip now. Like what kind of what specifically do you have that light strip doing? I have it across the back of my desk and I, whenever I'm in here and at in my office at night and say I want to watch some baseball or YouTube or whatever, I turn off all the other lights and keep the light strip on on my desk to give it some ambiance. Yeah. And then I have two light strips on the back of my two TVs for bias lighting. The one in my living room I use when I'm gaming because I have a PlayStation 4. And whenever I want to play games, I basically turn the two lights off in the in the living room and then keep the light on behind the TV, the light strip on behind the TV. And the one TV in my bedroom, there's a there is a another TV, a bias lighting strip behind there that I use for nighttime watching. But yeah, that's it. I got to say, for someone who says they don't watch much TV, you have a lot of TVs. I do. And I don't even I, I, I have one in my living room and I don't even spend time in my living room. It's just there. Like I'm basically I basically I feel bad because I have that TV and I have HomePods hooked up to that TV and I'm not even in there. <laughs> I just use that TV for gaming. And then the TV like I don't have cable. I just have that Apple TV box in both my bedroom and my living room. And I watch YouTube like that's sure. basically yeah, I mean, or, or baseball, whatever. I don't have yeah. cable. I watch a lot of TV, but all through streaming services. And Same. I, I do watch a lot of YouTube. I PBS eons, man. History of yeah. the world. The, yeah, yeah. I enjoy the educational YouTubes. Good stuff. Me too. All right. So where can people find Tiffany White on the Internet? You can find me at at Tiffany White Dev on Twitter. You can find my blog at TiffanyWhite.dev. And you can find uh, my other blog that I write more about uh, personal things and Apple tech and smart home tech and things like that at TiffanyWhite.blog. And what's your Instagram? I, I guess I'll give you my photography and filmmaking Instagram. It's tr white media cool on instagram awesome all right thanks for your time today tiffany all right thank you brett it's been good catching up with you and we'll see everyone in a week hey thanks for tuning in to systematic check out more episodes at systematicpod.com and subscribe on apple Podcasts, spotify or your favorite podcast app find me as tt scoff on all social platforms and follow systematic at systemcast s-y-s-t-m-c-a-s-t on twitter Thanks for listening.